0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: I have this wonderful friend, Dinesh, um, and he said to me, he goes, Liz, what's your question that you're holding this year? And I'm like, wow, that's a really... A long time to hold a question, and and, and he, but he was so sincere in his his request, and I'm like, okay, I actually do think I have a question that I'm holding right now, and the question is, how does what we know get in the way of what we don't know, but need to learn? Because I felt like I finally knew stuff, but now I'm leaving and going into a new environment, and I began to wonder, how does all of this mastery and this competence that I have built the hard way, how is that actually going to now? be a liability to me in this new environment, and, and for me, it wasn't just, a, I could see it wasn't just a question for me, you know, we're living in fast times, and, you know, technology is, is causing our, our business cycles to spin so fast that often we don't even face the same problem twice.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. Oh, Srini, glad to be here. I'm excited for our conversation.
0: Yeah, so I was introduced to you by way of our mutual friend, Michael bungay Stanier, who was uh, a guest here very recently on The Unmistakable Creative and one of the few people who has actually been back twice to our show before it was even called The Unmistakable Creative. So um, I want to start with a question that actually uh, was posed by one of our listeners when I asked them, what question would you ask any of our guests if you could ask them? And I personally liked this one because I thought it was really interesting. So I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and how did that end up influencing the choices you made, um, about your career?
1: Oh, I, what a fun question. I am the daughter of a donut maker. And, um, you know, before my father was a donut maker, he was a mortician. And after his, he was a donut maker, he, uh, sold commercial real estate. And he told me once, he goes, you know, I, I have had the jobs that are probably the least respected jobs in our society. <laughs> he's like, and and he wasn't even particularly successful at these jobs. Um, he was he was tossed out of the the family mortuary business. So I saw my father struggle, but I also, as the daughter of a donut maker, uh, I saw him work seven days a week, going in at ten o'clock at night to count the cash from the day before and to then do the books and to make donuts all night long and then start to sell them in the morning. And I watched him do that seven days a week for 10 years. And my mother is uh, an educator, so I'm also the daughter of an educator, which is why I think... So I think for my father, I learned, um, I don't know, probably kind of a compulsive, maybe even obsessive work ethic... And uh, for my mom, I, I really developed a love of learning, and I watched her go back to school and get her bachelor's degree, and then her master's degree, and then another master's degree. And I saw her teach, and saw her going to school administration. And I really do. I think. I think I learned a love of work and a love of learning, and I think it very much influences what I do now because I love doing both of those. I love my work. Mm-hmm. I love learning.
0: Mm-hmm. So, silly question. Do you absolutely just despise donuts or do you love
1: them? Oh, that's a ridiculous <laughs> question. I love donuts. Like, I have, I have sugar just like running through my veins. Um, yeah, like I'm on a high sugar diet pretty much. Yeah, no, no. It's, it is my destiny to love donuts <laughs> and sugar. Maple bars. In fact, the last couple of weeks I just kept saying to my husband every time he would go, run to the grocery store, I'm like, you bring back a maple bar and you're my man. You're my man.
0: So that work ethic, um, you know, I'm curious. Just based on what I see in the world and, and how much time I see a lot of people wasting, uh, because I feel like I see everybody on Facebook every day. You think work ethic is one of those things that can be developed and, and cultivated without having grown up in the, the circumstances and the situation that you did? And and of course, then how did that work ethic later on shape um, the work that you did?
1: Well, you know, I hope it can be cultivated because I've got four kids, and you know, they're kind of in these early teen to early young adult years and they're lazy you know they're as lazy as can be and and I hope that it is cultivated and you know and they're not they're not probably any lazier than any other teenager but you know I think I learned a work ethic because I had to work I, I, I didn't have parents with a lot of resources um I remember when my my dad sat me down my senior year in high school and he said something to the effect of, well, you know, we can afford to send you to college, but we're not going to. You know, you're going to have to pay for that yourself. Now, I don't know that they could actually afford to send me to college, but, you know, I had to figure out how to get myself through a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. Well, my kids, like all of their other peers, you know, generally have parents who see it as their responsibility to get them through college, not just a, a bachelor's degree, but a master's degree and to help launch them in the world. And, and I wonder, will my children develop that same work ethic?
0: Hmm.
1: I mean, if you look at the macro data on this, it, it's fairly bleak. You know, you look at um, generational, like immigrant work ethic, children of immigrant, grandchildren of immigrant and you can see that there are definitely generational differences on this but you know I I, I don't have I don't want to miss misspeak at all I don't have an amazing work ethic I'm not you know probably any harder worker working than anyone else I find my work ethic comes because of sort of this naive um, delight in challenges like you know when someone, says, hey, you know, why don't you try this? I'm very quick to say yes to things and to say yes to opportunities, which puts me in over my head. (laughs) And I have no choice but to sort of work my way out of it. So I don't know if I have this really um, deep work ethic as much as I have a willingness to say yes to hard things, which forces a work ethic. So I think I, for most of the part, have a forced work ethic.
3: Hmm.
0: So when your parents tell you something like, uh, we can't, you know, we, we can afford to send to, co- to college, but you're going to have to do this on your own. I mean, does it make you question the path that you're going to go down? Or did that uh, alter the way you would make decisions about something like going to college? And if so, how?
1: Well, I, I'm, I'm a real pragmatist. I, I, when I figured out I had to put myself through college, I just started to do the math on this. Okay, what is college going to cost and I went to a a private school, had a self-fund private school. And so I just, you know, okay, um, how much do I have to earn in the summer to be able to pay tuition? You know, after, like, first of all, what what scholarships do I need to get and can I get and how do I keep scholarships? Because keeping scholarships seemed like... Um, I guess I'm really talking myself into the fact that I think I might be fundamentally lazy. Pretty, but <laughs> I, I think I'm actually a lazy person who's been forced to work hard, but I'm like, okay, getting a scholarship seems kind of hard, but keeping a scholarship is not so hard. That's easier than working. And so I'd figure out how do I piece together my education between scholarship money and work money. And, you know, I couldn't just go get any old job during the summers, I had to get the prime. Summer jobs because I needed the money to be able to fund work and I ended up um, and fund school. And then I ended up doing pretty well in school because I needed to be able, like, there was no room to fail a class or to, I would, you know, people talk about, oh, well, I'll just repeat that class. I thought, repeat the class. Like, that's a logic I can't even begin to get my head around because I needed, like, I couldn't afford to delay this any longer. Than, than I had and I don't know I, I think I ended up just I don't know if it's doing well or taking the right kind of jobs but it was all very practical because I had to I had to, to pave that road myself. Um,
0: Do you ever feel like you had to compromise between what you were uh, innately drawn towards uh, and what made the most practical sense?
1: Yes, I, 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 absolutely. And I, I think this is one of the, well, first of all, I think this, this, um, this mess, I'm just going to go right out there and say, it. I think this, this message that we're, we're peddling to millennials and to our children is a very, very dangerous message. It's like, follow your passions, figure out what you love doing and go doing it. I think it's, um, I kind of think it's garbage kind of think it's garbage uh my view is you know what go make yourself useful go find a spill that needs to be cleaned up go find a problem that needs to be solved go find an opportunity a hole in the market and close it and you know what you might find is that you might find you enjoy doing that and as you do it you're going to become really valuable to organizations which is going to earn you the right to start to pick and choose your opportunities. And you can start to pick and choose those that you're really, really passionate about. Um, I I got some great, and I, I I don't know if it came in the form of advice or a brick thrown at my head, but um, (laughs) you know, if it was advice, I probably wouldn't have paid that much attention to it. So it probably felt a little bit more like a brick to my head. So I had joined Oracle right out of school and I, um, I joined out of business school um, in my master's program. I had studied organizational behavior. I came out of that with a real passion for wanting to teach leadership. I didn't want to actually be a leader as much as I wanted to teach <clears throat> leadership. And I joined Oracle, this maverick, rapidly growing software company. And you know, a few months into this, um, you know, I'm having an, getting this opportunity to interview to for a job in this growing department. So it's an internal interview opportunity and they're starting up a university inside of Oracle, what would become today Oracle university. And I'm interviewing for this job. I've got a few months under my belt. I've done a good job. I know it. I know the VP who's doing the interview knows that I've done a good job with the assignments I had been given. And so I tell him what I want to do and I describe for him that what I want to do for Oracle is help develop managers because the company's been growing really fast. There was really no discipline around this, and people are being thrown into management jobs with no management training, no development. And I make a case for something that I want to do. It's something I'm absolutely passionate about. I'm excited to go do it. And I remember what my VP said. His name is Bob Shaver. And he said, Liz, that's great. And we'd love for you to do that. And we're thrilled that you, you know, are considering joining this group but right now your boss she's got to figure out how to get 3000 people you know in hired at Oracle and trained in Oracle technology and it's and that's what we need to be able to grow the business and he said so we understand what you want to do but your boss has a different problem and i suggest you help her solve that I wanted to go teach leadership, and what they needed was someone to go teach programming. Okay, now, I had no real passion for programming, despite the fact that I worked for a software company, and truth be told, my lowest grade that I got in college was my freshman year in college. I took a Fortran programming class, and I ended up getting a C in this class, and the only reason I got a C is because the final was a partner project, and you know, I think... Uh, I think I got partnered with kind of the nerd in the class who, you know, who aces this. And I, that's the only reason I ended up getting a C in this class. So I had no even native skill or no real native passion to teach programming. And I was going to be teaching programming to all the programmers that Oracle was going to be hired. I realized now that I'm probably boxing myself into a corner <laughs> because Bob told me essentially go make yourself useful. I said, okay, I get it. What this company, what's on the critical path right now is technical training. And I'm going to go do that. And although I wouldn't consider myself a deep technologist, I became one. And I was like up till 5am some nights preparing to teach. I learned the material as my students were learning the material. My goal was just learn it a few hours before I'm teaching it to them. And and the reason why I realized I'm painting myself into a corner in there is I think so many of my students had no idea that I was learning along with them. Um, and I, this experience I had, and it turns out that I was a pretty good teacher of programming, this experience I had really shaped my whole lens, which is, you know, yeah, it's one thing to go pursue your passions, but there's so much value in making yourself useful. Because... Once I did that, then they needed someone to kind of lead and build the university and take it to the next level. I was tapped to do it because I understood the technology and maybe because I was willing to go figure those hard things out that I didn't necessarily want to do. Mm -hmm. And I found that having this orientation just led me to opportunity to opportunity. And soon you get kind of handed a blank check. Hey, what is it that you love to do? And you get to go do it. So I don't know. I'm I'm very cautious about saying to young people, you know, figure out what you're passionate about and go do it.
0: Yeah. It's funny. It makes me think of of two conversations I've had uh, on the show. One was with uh, Robert Green, who wrote the book Mastery, uh, which came out several years ago. And I remember he specifically told me no experience in your life should ever be thought of as wasted. And I thought... You know, in the moment, you, when, when you're going through an experience that you don't want to be going through, you're like, how could this not be a wasted experience? Like, I hate mm. this job. Um, and I look back at almost every job I had and I realized, if, even from the ones that I absolutely despised, I took something from them that later on helped. Um, and then the other, you know, it, it's so funny because you, if you've uh, <clears throat> listened to anything that Cal Newport says, you know, he wrote a book called How to Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. And he said passion, he said we put the cart before the horse when it comes to passion.
1: Yeah, say more about that. What does he mean by that?
0: Well, he said often, you know, it's kind of like you said, you know, young people want to do things that they're passionate about. He said, but often what he found in his research about how to become so good, they can't ignore you is that a lot of people didn't start out with a passion for what they do. They became really good at what they did. And as a result, they became passionate about it.
1: Oh, yeah, because I'm a lot more passionate about things I'm good at. You know, if you ask me... To, um, I was just having a conversation with my husband about Ultimate Frisbee. He's so passionate about that. I'm like, yeah, easy for you to love that because you're good at it. I'm terrible at throwing, at catching, this be like every part of that sport are things I'm not good at. Um, but it, I think it really is true that we, we come to truly love the things where we have talent and where we have gift. So I'm not saying, you know, deny your passion. Mm-hmm. But I think... Passion can be a byproduct um, of this.
0: So I want to take a few steps back uh, before Oracle. And I'm curious what the very first job you ever had was and what you learned from it um, that you still apply to your life today.
1: Oh, goodness. Well, I started working really young. Um, my very first job is uh, was working at my dad's donut shop. So I was 13 years old. I was probably 14 years old when I started to work the night shift. Now, this is probably this is a, probably a violation of all sorts of child labor laws. Uh, <laughs> and <clears throat> my my father is is now passed. He's been, uh, been passed for about 13 years. So, um, so I, I'm working at probably eight o'clock at night, like I must've like finished up my day at school and then I would ride my bike down to the donut shop. This was in Cupertino, not far from where the Apple headquarters sits today. And I would go in, I was was working at nine o'clock at night by myself and my dad would come in, I think around 10 or 11 or so. And, um, you know, he would close out the registers. I'm working alone and I get robbed at gunpoint and i remember this moment of uh and it was totally my fault i was always told don't let anyone back to the back room there was a there was a, um, a you know uh, a washroom back there for the employees i was never to let anyone but you know a man and a woman came in and she needed to use the bathroom i'm like oh of course you can go use the bathroom okay well suddenly i'm in now a compromised position and i'm deciding what what do I do? You know, they want the money. And this is like my, this is my family's donut business and the money. And I was, you know, had this moment where I was a little bit torn because, you know, funny, I was actually not really afraid of the, the person with the gun because I didn't actually think they were going to kill me. I was a little bit more worried, not of my father, because he wasn't really scary. Uh, I was, I, I hated the idea of going home and saying, by the way, the money that you've earned for the day is gone. Uh, but uh, you know very quickly I came to some a practical sense of just hand them the money, and I did, and then I called my father, and of course he told me i did I did the right thing, but you know, I think from that experience I learned that you know what sometimes you just don't put up a fight, you just like do the thing that's gonna be expedient, get it done that was that was probably my first job, but the first job like outside of, of the family business was um i, 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 I it blows me away that someone actually gave me this job. So I'm now 16 years old and um, one of my hobbies was sewing. I love to sew. I love to create. I love to design. i had been sewing since I was a little girl. And it turned out down at the mall in San Jose, California, at the Westgate Mall, there was a bridal store. And they had a daytime alterations lady and they needed an evening and weekend alterations lady. My friend worked at this store and she said, Liz, they need an alterations person. I told them they should hire you. And they hired me. So this bridal store hired a 16 year old girl to alter the wedding gowns and the bridesmaids dresses for the brides. I look back and I think, what bride in her right mind would do this? And I'll tell you one of the things I learned from, from this job. I learned how to to recover when you screw stuff up. Um, There was this one bride, Kathy. She had um, fallen in love with this size 12 um, sample wedding dress. So we couldn't order it in a smaller size, um, but she was a size six. So I had to completely deconstruct the size 12 dress, put it down to a size six. She came in for a fitting. It fit beautifully. Like she and I are cheering for this work that I had done, she's like hugging me, thanking me. Well, that changed pretty quickly because that was about a month or two before her wedding. Four days before her wedding, she comes in to pick up her dress, and the store manager like calls to me in the back because I'm like in the back room, hovered over you know a hot sewing machine, and and she asks if the dress is ready. To see, because I had to press the dress. I, I hated pressing dresses, and honestly, I felt. It was a little below my capability level, even at sixteen. I had a bit of a—I guess I had a bit of an attitude, and and so she was out there waiting, and her dress needed to be pressed. I felt like one of the store clerks could have done that, but um, so I fire up the iron, and I put that dress on the ironing board, and I place the iron down on the bodice of the dress, and and to my horror, of course, I'm watching as the dress, all the lace and the polyester, because this was the '80s, like is shriveling under the iron and I pull up the iron and I have melted a hole in the bodice of her dress. The bodice for like maybe the men online, like that's the chest part. This is the upper part. She now has a hole in her dress four days before her wedding. I mean, I had screwed this up so bad that there's no way to recover from this. There's no like, oops, or pretending it didn't happen. I walk out there and I'm like, Kathy, I've just burnt a hole in your dress. And it is really, really bad. Like, it is bad. But, you know, and I'm watching just her face as she's hearing this news four days before her wedding. And I said, but I will fix it. And if you come back here two days from now... This dress will be like new, I will fix it." And she said, Liz, you can, you can really fix this." I said, I can fix this." And she left and I scrambled and you know, I had to go f- to multiple stores to find the right kind of fabrics and lace. And, and I rebuilt this for her. and you know I think it taught me because um, I was in over my head, but what it taught me is, you know when you screw things up, own it, fix the problem. you know don't try to you know talk your way. Out of it, it's just own the mistake, fix the problem, and and I think it also taught me another really important lesson around work ethic: is there is no work um, below your your capability level. When you sign up to do something, you do everything the the glory work and you know some of the hot and sweaty work just to take ownership of the whole problem. And you know, still to this day, blows me away that she did not. Like physically attack me And I had done this, and she came, and picked up her dress, and she actually hugged me again and and thanked me. And again, and you know, I think there's this other lesson. A lot of us have heard this research is that when you screw something up and you fix it, you end up with greater customer loyalty. Um, now, I would not recommend anyone go burn a hole through somebody's wedding dress just to prove the point. <laughs> But I certainly learned to own the mistake, fix it, and in the end, you know, you end up better off.
4: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com
2: a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot bot may be your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times
3: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. What do you think some people crack in situations like that when they screw up or or they don't uh, perform well under that kind of pressure? And, and, you know, I mean, in your work, like what have you seen as a distinction between those people given, you know, that you've literally taught people how to thrive within organizations?
1: Oh, man, that is the question. It's actually a question I don't have an answer to. Um, I've been wondering about this. Um, you know, one of my more recent research projects was looking at why people tend to perform so well when they're um, rookies, when they're underqualified, when they're on a learning curve, and why that process is as valuable, if not more valuable right now than the um, holding of expertise and and mastery and and I've wondered why is it that when that learning curve gets really steep, when there's an inflection point in there, why is it that sometimes people persist and why do we sometimes fall back? And I don't know the answer to this. I have a bunch of theories on this, but I, I feel like I really want to know mm-hmm. beyond my own experience. Um, I, I, I guess from my own experience – when I see two things come into play, something usually kicks in for me. Uh, one is when you have to, you know, she has a wedding four days from now. It is really not an option to not fix this problem. It's also really wasn't an option to, to blame it on someone else. Not that I would have, I don't think I would have naturally done that. I think I would have owned it, but you have an event and it's in front of you. And so it's a stand and deliver kind of of moment. Um, You know, I contrast that to my attempts to learn to speak Spanish, which have have gone nowhere. And, you know, I've tried really hard to learn to do this. And my daughter said something to me I thought was interesting. You know, we were down um, on vacation down in Central America. And my daughter said, you know, mom, I've noticed something that when you Speak to people in Spanish that they speak back to you in English, and I'm like, Yeah, okay, I've noticed that too. And she goes, I think I know why, and I'm like, Why, you know? And she goes, Because you're not really very good at it, (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like, Okay, you notice that too. Well, see, they notice, I notice they speak back to me in English, doing for them what is a generous thing, like sort of taking pity on me. But when I'm trying to learn Spanish and someone speaks back to me in English, I face a decision. Do I persist in my meager Spanish, humiliating myself and also slowing them down? Or do I take the rescue? Well, I can tell you, I take the rescue almost all the time because it's available. And there's something about how we persist when there is no rescue, when the stakes are high, when it's important and when it's hard. I mean, I guarantee you, I will learn to speak Spanish if you airdrop me into a Spanish speaking country and I have no money and no one around me that speaks English, and no way out. Like, I will persist and I will, will learn. And, and I think the other thing I've noticed is when I, and I, I notice this with others, when, when I can collect confidence points, when I can gather confidence, like, okay, you know, back to that dress. Like, okay, I got a dress from a size 12 down to a size six and it fit perfectly. You know, I have fixed other problems, like I've screwed stuff up in my own sewing at home, and I fixed that. And you start to um, triangulate between data points and saying, okay, I did this hard thing, I did that hard thing. Like, if I've done that, I can probably do this. We we collect these little confidence points, which alone aren't enough, but when you aggregate them and extrapolate them, you say, I can probably handle that. You know, I think that's part of, um, I mean, it certainly shaped a lot of my philosophies around um, how to be a good parent. You know, how do you help your kids collect confidence points? Not that not that I can do it, but that they can do it. Um, and I think it's how, it's really key to developing talent inside our workplaces. Is, you know, how do you give people assignments that allow them to build the confidence they need to take on the really hard stuff?
0: So, Walk me through the journey from Oracle to the work that you're doing today and what it's all about.
1: <laughs> well, um, so I I love my time at Oracle. I was, you know, thrown into teaching programming. I was thrown into management at 24 years old. Always underqualified for really big and hard jobs, and it was thrilling. And I got thrown into management early, which meant I got to work with senior executives really early on in. In my career, which is kind of a frightening experience, not because the executives are scary, but you realize that they don't know what they're doing either. Everyone's like, oh, wow, the executive's at the top of the organization, they have things figured out. Not really. They're just like big kids, too. and You know, in fast times, everybody is winging it. And so I got to work with senior manager, and I also got these oversized jobs, but eventually I started to feel qualified for what I was doing. And honestly, it felt good for 24 hours. But then I had this kind of sick feeling about it. It wasn't a sick feeling about Oracle and its prospects. It was just um, this feeling of being on a plateau and feeling a little bit stuck. And so I left Oracle in search of something I didn't know how to do, something that I was really interested in, that I was very passionate about, but actually totally unqualified to do. And um I left Oracle, started doing some executive coaching and uh then, you know, had a few ideas and decided I was gonna research them. And I've you know now am working as a management researcher and an author. And when I left Oracle, I had a couple real burning questions, and one of them was why is it that we seem to be so smart and capable around certain leaders, and and why are we complete idiots around others? Um, you know, I, I got to work on Oracle's senior management team. I got to study and watch a lot of executives in action, and I would watch people come in to pitch or present to. Executive A, and they would be just brilliant, and ideas would flow, and problems would get solved. And then later, I would be in another meeting with that very same person. And now we're working with Executive B. And I see that person hold back and play it safe, and sometimes kind of be a babbling idiot. And I'm like, what happened? Because I know that person. I know that person is brilliant. And why are they brilliant around Person A, but kind of dumb around Person B? And it was a question that lingered for me and I ended up coaching a lot of really smart executives, many of whom shut down ideas and capability in others. And, um, so I started working on this idea of leader as diminisher versus leader as, as multiplier. That was my first research project. And, and actually I, I started working on it because there was a need. I was coaching an executive who was struggling this and I needed to find the answers to it. So I was like, well, Nobody's done this research. Nobody's written about this. Somebody needs to do this. So I guess I'll make myself useful here. And that became the book Multipliers. And, uh, and then later I, I wrote another derivative of that called The Multiplier Effect, which was really looking at this dynamic in our school systems, where unfortunately this diminishing effect goes deeper. Mm. Uh, And and that was one big question I I, I left with. And then I had another question. It was a very personal question as you know, I left Oracle, a job where I'm comfortable, where I'm the boss. And I leave, you know, to a job where I'm an underdog at best. And I have this wonderful friend, Dinesh. um, And he said to me, he goes, Liz, what's your question that you're holding this year? And I'm like, wow, that's a really, that's a long time to hold a question. And, and, and he, but he was so sincere in his, his request. And I'm like, okay, I actually do think I have a question that I'm holding right now. And the question is, how does what we know get in the way of what we don't know, but need to learn? Because I felt like I finally knew stuff, but now I'm leaving and going into a new environment. And I began to wonder, how does all of this mastery and this competence that I have built the hard way how is that actually going to now be a liability to me in this new environment? And, and for me, it wasn't just a, I could see it wasn't just a question for me, you know, we're living in fast times and, you know, technology is, is causing our, our business cycles to spin so fast that often we don't even face the same problem twice. You know, there's not a lot of opportunity for reuse and, you know, we're working in an environment where what we know isn't nearly as as important as how fast we learn. And it was this question that, that prompted me to do this research. In fact, I was meeting with my um, publisher at HarperCollins, who had published uh, Multipliers, and we were talking about an idea for next book, but you know, I was on a rant about this idea about how what we know gets in the way of what we don't know. My publisher said, Liz, that's your, that's your next book. I'm like, oh no, that's just my rant. That is a question that I can't seem to let go of. And she's like, oh no, it's your next book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so that really what um, prompted me to do the kind of research I'm doing, I'm doing now.
0: That raises so many questions. Uh, The first being, about how people react to the presence of certain people. Uh, you know, I, I think we live in a world where it's really easy to put people on pedestals because, you know, what do we see? They're curated lives on Facebook. And I, I think it tends to alter our behavior and, and who we actually are when we're around those people. So before we get into how those people alter their behavior, I'm curious how we can alter our behavior for better outcomes and not put people on those pedestals? Because, I mean, you said, you know, you were in a lot of places, you you felt like you were in a position, um, where you were all, all the people above you were, were more qualified, but you're still able to kind of hold your own with them. And I'm I'm curious how that happens for people in their lives. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Like, how do you figure out that they're just normal people like you?
0: Yeah. There you go.
1: Oh, um, you know, I had this, I'm trying to figure out how I really figured, that out, um, I don't know what the what the on ramp to that looked like, but I'll tell you a conversation I had that really changed how I saw senior leaders. Uh, well, you know, first is I think you know go into some of these the management committee meetings, and you think they're talking about you know really important strategy, and and they're arguing over you know should we have. Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi in, in the refrigerators, and you're like, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> there's some pedestrian parts of their world as well. But I had this conversation with um, I was working on a program. Um, I'm running the university, and one of the things we're doing is we're doing developing our executives, and we're putting some programs together to develop our executives. This is back in the mid '90s. The internet has really changed the competitive landscape for software companies. We're well positioned for this, but we want to make sure all of our executives understand oracle strategy and can talk about it to their teams and kind of teach that down to their organization we we come up with this idea that we're going to bring them in 30 at a time from around the world 30 at a time teach them the strategy our senior executives would would sort of teach them the strategy my team and i would help them build leadership we'd kind of pat them on the butt send them back out on the field to go execute the strategy and the feedback after the first session wasn't particularly good. They said, you know what, the program was great, but honestly, the strategy, it's not particularly compelling. And it's not clear to us. And we're like, oh, okay, so what should we do? We So we rearranged the slides you know, in the PowerPoint deck and said, okay, that's probably better. And then we held session two to very similar feedback. And we held session three to the same kind of feedback. I am now meeting with the president the chief technology officer and the chief financial officer, Jeff Henley, who was uh, my boss at the time. And I'm going through the feedback with them because to, to, I want to make sure they understand that what people are saying is that the strategy just isn't there. We're not seeing it. I go through the feedback and they become noticeably quiet. And so, I think they don't quite get it. So I just go through that feedback one more time to make sure they understand it. And that's when Jeff, he just like you could see, he starts to get really agitated. And he said to me, he goes, Liz, you can stop beating us up. And I was like, wow, well, you know, I'm thinking that was a little bit fun, actually, um, you know, getting to beat up your boss and the other, you know, C-level executives. And he said, you can stop beating us up because we understand that there's a problem. The issue is here is that we don't know how to do this. And I am in this kind of split second or two that I have to process what he's telling me. I'm thinking, what exactly is he saying? Is he saying we don't know how to develop leaders? I'm not so worried about that. My team and I kind of know how to do that. Is he saying we don't know how to communicate the strategy? I'm like, okay, I'm getting a little bit worried about that. Because that's kind of the job of the guys at the top.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: And then I actually realize what he's saying is we don't know how to develop the strategy. Because the president and the CTO are sitting next to him and their heads are starting to nod in concurrence, like, yeah, what Jeff said. And, and I'm realizing this and, you know, I'm starting to really kind of be alarmed. And, and he said, we've never run a company this big. Before it's now like a $25 billion global business. And he goes, we've never set a strategy for a company this complex and globally this is new to us too. And he, then he said, he goes, if you could help us figure out how to do that, he goes, now that would be helpful. (laughs) And it, it forever changed my perspective on senior leaders, uh, because like, if you are leading in a growth environment, every single day you're underqualified for your job. You know, we look at, founders and CEOs, you know, it might be obvious with people like Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, like, okay, yeah, we get that he started Facebook when he was in college and then dropped out and that every day he's got a job bigger than who he was yesterday. And one of the things that's so brilliant about Mark is that he has put himself on a very purposeful learning path to be able to handle that kind of job and that kind of growth. But, you know, you look around at senior leaders and And I guess what I wish everyone could see is that they're figuring it out and every day is new for them too. Even if you're not in a growth company, right now our environment is changing so fast that even the people on the top, the people who are supposed to have the answers, they don't have answers. You know, at best, they have intelligent questions. Now, there's a lot of leaders who haven't figured that out themselves, and so they're still trying to lead By knowing it all and having the answers. And that's what I think creates this incredibly diminishing effect. You know, I think when when leaders end up operating as multipliers and really bringing out the best in the people around them, they've figured out that it's okay to do what Jeff Henley said to me that day, which is, hey, this is new to us too. You know, if you could help me figure this out, like Liz, that would be useful. And, you know, you can imagine what I did because I'm a sucker for make yourself useful. So I'm like, okay, well, let me get a tutor in for these guys. And we brought in this really prominent management thinker, C.K. Prahalad. He helped us rethink the strategy and re-architect it. Incidentally, we built it around a set of questions, not a set of knowns. And it was so thrilling to see these executives then be able to kind of square their shoulders and say, here's the strategy we see for the organization. And it was this absolute home run. But I think it comes when we, we, we are forgiving of the people at the top of our organizations. We, we have empathy that, you know what, they have hard things too. They don't have all the answers. They're trying to figure it out.
0: Hmm. You know, I, as I'm looking back over the course of our conversation, I feel like there's one thread that keeps coming up over and over again, and that is this notion of questions that drive what you're about to do next. Um, And it seems like that's been a theme throughout your entire career. But it
1: must be because it's what happens when you're perpetually underqualified for your work. (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't have an answer, but at best I've got a a well-formed question.
0: So that to me raises the question of how people figure out what the questions are in their lives that can drive them to something that, you know, they're drawn towards.
1: Oh, so what makes a well-formed question? You know, there's a a little litmus test I use because I'm often teaching executives how, you know, and managers, how do you ask really good questions? And I think there's a whole value ladder to this. Um, But there's a simple rule I use, which is if you're asking a question that you know the answer to, it's not a good question. Um you know a good question is one that you really don't have an answer to. You've got to puzzle over you've got to do the work uh, behind. I think a good question is one that makes you feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think a good question is one that you can't get rid of uh, i have a I have a little shopping rule, like my own personal shopping rule as to like what do I buy for myself? And particularly when the price tag gets a little bit high, and particularly when it involves totally unnecessary things like art or something. And my rule is is you know you kind of walk away from stuff unless you never come back, and then you just you get it. You know if you're in a market in you know Marrakesh, you just you got to seize the opportunity. But if you see something that speaks to you, you know walk away, and if it's still speaking to you two weeks later. Like you hunt that thing down and you acquire it like a piece of art. And so I try to like get distance from something and say, okay, is it still calling me? You know, am I still drawn to that statue or that piece of art? And if it is returned to it. And I go back to what my friend Dinesh uh, Chandra you know, uh, taught me is, what's the question that you're holding for a long period of time? It has to be something that you keep being drawn back to. And I don't think it has to be profound. I think it just has to be interesting to you.
0: Hmm. So a couple of final questions. Um, what is one piece of art, uh, book, music, or movie that has profoundly influenced your life that you'd recommend to people who are listening?
1: Oh, well... Um well, there is a piece of art in Italy that I obsessed over like eight years in trying to cr- – I'm not talking – I should be careful. I'm not talking about like museum collector pieces with like lots of commas in it, just certain art that speaks to me. But a movie um, – a movie, art, or book. All three are fair game. Ah oh, this is this is a big broad playing field. Yeah, yeah. You know, the movie Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. has always grabbed me. Um, you know, it's been a long favorite of mine, as is Life is Beautiful, is one of my favorites as well. Um and I, I love movies where you get a chance to really look at um hardship, struggle. But that there's a story of redemption or finding light in darkness. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons why I like Life is Beautiful. Some people hate this movie. Um, you know, it's an Italian comedy about the Holocaust, um, mm-hmm. which you know is not really a recipe for a great movie. People are like, "What?" But it's about you know choosing to find the good in something that is abhorrent. Um, Movies like that um, inspire me. Um, I guess, you know, anything where you find beauty mm-hmm. amongst darkness probably inspires me. Hmm.
0: So, so, I have one last question for you, which is how we finish uh, all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Tell me what you mean by unmistakable.
0: Okay, so I define unmistakable because when you write a book called Unmistakable, you're required to define it. Um, yeah,
1: you got to figure that out.
0: <laughs> I define it as something so distinctive that nobody else could have done but you.
1: Okay, now give me the question again.
0: What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: I think it's authenticity. You know, there is something so incredibly powerful about people who are comfortable with themselves. You know, I think the most powerful people in the world aren't people who wield influence. It's that people who are willing to speak truth because they know their own truth. Um, You know, when we become, when we stop pretending to be someone else, when we stop playing roles, you know, uh, in other people's plays and we start just owning like who we are. I'm the daughter of a donut maker, you know, and, and we're comfortable with how we look, how we feel with our gender, with other people's gender. When we just become really, really comfortable with, with truth and reality, I think it emboldens us. And you can see people who are pretending and, and, and they end up, um, working in very inauthentic and false ways. And man, I don't know about you, but I can smell it. You know, it kind of stinks and you can smell it from really far away. And I, and I think the most powerful people are just comfortable in their own skin. and And I think they do brilliant work. I think the most brilliant people are comfortable with who they are and who they aren't.
0: Well, uh, this has been fabulous. I, I can see now why Michael referred you as a guest. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights with our listeners.
1: Thank you. Thank you for helping um, us to to unleash creativity and brilliance in our work. So Shweeney, thank you.
0: Yeah, and for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Next time on The Unmistakable Creative. It's not just about being seen working. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. about, it's about putting in the time and the cycles and the energy Um, you know, there's a, a hustle, uh, and you, you, you can't, there's so many things that you can't control. Uh, there's generally two things that I, and it's funny, I was just, uh, on my Snapchat yesterday talking about this, um, which is, I'm just Chase Jarvis, if you care to follow me there, but it's basically, there's two things that you can control. I mean, you can't control the weather. You can't control the market conditions. You can control your level of effort and you can control who you run around with. You can control the people that you spend time with. Those are generally things that you choose. We're joined by Creative Life founder Chase Jarvis.
4: Hold up.